The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, all. Today, we're going to talk about a very important topic of cyber terrorism terrorism, cybersecurity, and frankly, from Sony to Anthem, data breaches happen so often we hardly even notice. Nevertheless, these criminals, these hackers can wreak havoc on our lives if or when our personal information is used, medical records, financial data, social security numbers. So we're going to talk about that today. I'm very happy to introduce you to Jeff Spivey. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, and it's uh, Spivey, yeah. A Spivey, excuse me, uh, Jeff okay. Spivey, and uh, well, that's a good name for a for a security kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, and Jeff is coming to us from North Carolina. He's an expert in risk assessment, management, and methods and procedures to defeat these threats. Threats. So, uh, Jeff, what is risk management? So, risk management uh, evolved since uh, its founding in the late 50s, early 60s, for companies or any organizations trying to understand all of the risk as a whole company that they're exposed to and then how to best manage uh, those risks. So there are associations that have grown up around that that may uh, be uh, dyed in the wool just risk managers uh, there was a movement in the 70s to have people that bought insurance for companies to also have risk management. But risk management is much more than understanding your, your risk, but it's also in treating those risks. And only one way of treating those risks is to transfer it to insurance. And there's other ways to be able to, uh, to treat those risks and be able to manage those best for the company. So more recently... It's called enterprise risk management. Okay. All right. So enterprise risk manager, E-R-M. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. So um, you, now you're a career security professional, and you are president of your, a company you founded. Is that uh, Security Risk Management, Inc.? Yes, that's, that's right. Founded that in uh, 1989 after... Uh, uh, five and a half years in law enforcement, and then five and a half years, six years with uh, NCNB, a financial institution that is now Bank of America. Okay, all right, pretty big, pretty big group of folks. Yeah. Um, 
And then you're also vice president of, of uh, Risk IQ. Yeah, I've, so, I've been, yeah, been involved with Risk IQ uh, since they uh, were starting up in San Francisco, and I've done different things, but it's it's somewhat from a, a guiding standpoint with strategy. They've grown significantly over the last three or four years, uh, and so I uh, am taking less of an active role with them, but still very much involved in them and, and believe in all of the things that the company is doing uh, around understanding risk intelligence. Okay, so what can you give us a quick thumbnail of what security risk management does and how that compares to risk IQ? Yes, yeah. uh, so risk uh, security risk management, if you look at all of enterprise risk management, then they deal with all of the different verticals of possible risk. So it could be disasters, it could be accidents, it could be safety. So the vertical that deals with security, which is the prevention and early warning of, of what may later on be a crime. It's mm-hmm. being able to understand what those security-related risks are and how those are managed. And so the consulting that's done out of security risk management based in Charlotte, North Carolina, is the ability to help companies understand uh, the uh, various risks that they may have and ways that they can make sure they're managing it appropriately. For the last 10, 15 years, then security risk management's been heavily involved in IT or cybersecurity uh, risk uh, and what that means to the company and how the company can better manage those types of risks. Okay. Uh, in regards to uh, Risk IQ, Risk IQ is a uh, built to scale software as a service type of technology that is providing understanding uh, risks that are discussed or presented in open source internet uh, okay. and, and, and then being able to understand what does that mean to a particular company. If somebody's talking about uh, risk to a particular company or if they're targeting a particular company, or if they, they're, they're very good at understanding all of the cybersecurity uh, techniques that may be used and may uh, need to be understood by a specific company so that they can better defend themselves, protect themselves, or even, even better than that, Risk IQ is good at those risks that are discussed outside of the firewall. So it's not the technical bits and bytes inside mm-hmm. of the firewall, but mm-hmm. it's what's being discussed from an intelligence standpoint outside. So they get involved in malvertisements, or they get involved in phishing attacks, or they get involved in understanding vulnerabilities and websites and other things that are outside of the control of this firewall that uh, may or may not be protecting the organization. Sounds like this is a company Sony should have had on board. <laughs> yeah, um, before they yeah, I think yeah, I think Sony's Sony's. Um, there were a lot of different things that came together. I think for Sony to to have had the problems that they did, similar to for Target or a lot of big companies. A lot of times, it's more of a people process than a technical. Uh, issue. They, a lot of companies have technical issues, but a lot of them are able to understand what those risks are, understand what the impact of that could be, 
uh, making sure that they're uh, discussing and getting the buy-in and the resources necessary to combat those. And it appears that in a number of different organizations, uh, that's not well understood, and so resources aren't applied to it, and then bad things happen. Well, and no matter what your technology is, you can't take away the human factor. It's always going to be there. How yeah, do you protect a, yourself yeah. against humans? Yeah, no, that's, an, that's an excellent, excellent piece. And, I mean, even the best of, of technical uh, uh, tools that are there to help detect uh, and provide some early warning, if you don't have all of the people processes in place, uh, to make sure that those are being handled properly, efficiently, in a quick way, then uh, you may miss the opportunity to prevent that incident. Uh, and then it moves over into how quickly can you uh, respond to the incident and stop the uh, negative effects within the organization. Sure. Sure. Now, uh, Jeff, you're also heavily involved in information systems auditing and control. Uh, the association for that. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that's a that's an excellent group of about 115,000 members globally. They used to be more of the IT auditors, uh, but they've matured much more than just being uh, from an audit standpoint. They're involved heavily in the governance of IT. Uh, they're heavily involved in cybersecurity education and training and new certifications that they are developing and have developed. Uh, but the group is uh, very serious about what they're doing in the IT arena. So they have uh, COBIT-5, uh, C-O-B-I-T, that is a framework from which companies can understand all of their IT risk, of which cybersecurity or cyber risk is just a part of that from a security standpoint. So this, this overall framework of COVID-5 uh, was actually, uh, the components of that were actually at the core of the recent NIST framework and guidelines that came out of the U.S. government uh, that discussed a, a excellent framework that they're suggesting for all companies to uh, use as well. So it's a, it's a grounding, it's education, it provides framework, and then also discusses the auditing side of it, which is the assurance that not only are these our plans of what we should be doing, but the auditing provides the assurance that those are actually going on and that because of changes in the organization or personnel or other processes that have changed, that mm -hmm. there's still a holistic view of what those risks are. So ISACA right. does an excellent job in that. All right. And, and you said Corbett 5. What does that stand for? Yeah, so it's uh, COVID. So C O. Oh, that's okay, C-O-B-I-T, okay. and uh, yeah, forgive me for not having that in front of me, but I don't. So it's, okay. <laughs> it's, it's generally referred to as, as, uh, as COVID-5. Okay, and then you mentioned NIST. That's the National, what is it, National Institute for Standard, Standards and Training? Yeah. what that stands for? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, and, and there's a lot going on in the security private investigator uh, arena from NIST, uh, setting standards on various uh, protocols. Yes, that's that's correct. That's correct, oh. and I think that I think that that also demonstrates the government government's willingness, either through NIST or through the information sharing that the government's trying to create around cybersecurity, 
that there is a uh, opportunity for investigators or for cybersecurity researchers um, to be able to uh, become get have a closer relationship with some of those in the government. The government in different different pockets understand cybersecurity very well, and there are some pockets that do not. And so the ability of the private sector that may actually be further along uh, in understanding some of these risks, that uh, there are opportunities for, uh, for that collaboration and combining of intelligence so that mm-hmm. it helps everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes, and important, too. Now, uh, we were talking about Osaka. You were the international vice president, um, and you're still involved as a on the Governance Advisory Council for them. That's, that's correct. It's a committee of the board that uh, helps govern uh, and assure governance from the board's, uh, board level. And then I was, prior to that, I was the vice president on the board uh, that, that was just one of the board members. Okay. And then you've also been very involved in, uh, as is international, past international president, chairman of the board, and I know all, uh, many of our listeners are very familiar. They may not be familiar with ISACA, but they are certainly familiar with As Is International. Yeah, As Is, uh, which what used to be American Society of Industrial Security, uh, then as they continue to expand globally, um, as a matter of fact, this week, uh, there is a, uh, this week, I think next week, a, uh, one of their European conferences is occurring. They have a Middle East conference. They're doing a lot more internationally, roughly 38,000 members globally. Uh, a lot of those members um, have come from either law enforcement or the military, and it's somewhat of a second uh, career for them in the security arena. So they may have left uh, government position and then taken over as uh, security director at different uh, businesses or other government agencies. So the the genesis from ASIS standpoint was heavily around physical security, but that's expanded also to where there's 32 different councils. Each of those councils has a uh, specific domain in the security arena. Uh, their website is asisonline.org. Okay, good. Uh, that's Thank that's you. there. Yeah. And there's going to be a uh, uh, their annual conference. Isn't that in Anaheim this year? That's correct. Uh, it is in Anaheim. I don't have those dates, but those could be found at that website as well. Right. Uh, and typically they'll have uh, a thousand vendors and probably a total of twenty thousand. Uh, vendor people as well as attendees. So there'll be roughly 20,000 or so people yeah. at those kind of conferences. It's pretty amazing. I've been to those. It's pretty amazing. Uh, so, yeah. uh, but besides that, you know, Jeff, you're involved in so many things. You're, um, you are holding a position on the advisory board for the National Center for Judicial Security of the Department of Justice. Uh, yeah, that's 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 correct. Yeah, it's it's an interesting group, and so that's the protection of federal judges, and uh, so this uh, uh, diverse group gets together and talks about uh, what direction uh, and needs there may be in that arena, uh, and the uh, United States Marshal Service also is looked at by a number of different countries 
as somewhat of a leader and provides training uh, and directions and collateral for other countries to best uh, be able to protect their federal judges. Uh, as in any country, the judicial arena does not need to be uh, threatened by the bad guys or those kind of things. And so the protection of, of judges is important, and it's, a, uh, it's an excellent group. And does that work hand-in-hand hand with the other group you're involved in, the um, State Department's Overseas Security Advisory Council? Um, no, it's not, it's not directly connected, but the, the Overseas Security Advisory Council I've been a part of since, like, 1991, 1992, and it's grown substantially since then. Uh, at our annual meeting, initially, we would have maybe uh, 200, 300 people at, and now there's thousands of people that may come to that. Uh, at the State Department, uh, and it's mainly made up of, of uh, large uh, U.S.-based companies that are doing business overseas, and the State Department has an interest in making sure that that, that group of businesses or organizations, uh, that one, they have the intelligence uh, around risk in those different countries, and so all of the country threat advisories out of the State Department come out of that OSAC uh, type of relationship. Hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so it's an interesting group, but it's also interesting from a networking standpoint that that group gets together so that they know each other and uh, are able to communicate directly with each other so that they may, uh, uh, one big company may be doing business in a particular country, and now they, because of this networking, they understand there's four other ones, and they have the, the uh, direct cell number for those directors of security, and they, that creates that uh, behind-the-scenes collaboration that's always important. Yeah, very important. Now, uh, Jeff, I know we're going to take a break just here in a second, but you have so many certifications, and uh, uh, the highest certification in IT and traditional security management, but I, I, that I understand, but what is the CRISC certification? Uh, that one's out of... Uh, ISACA, uh, and it's around uh, the the uh, understanding of IT risk and the management of those risks. Okay. Uh, and again, it, it, their their view of IT is much larger than just the security side of things. Uh, so it's 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 uh, looking at all of the risk, and a lot of the risk, even outside of security, uh, are need to be managed in the same way and are managed in the same way because of the dependency that all organizations have, the growing dependency on their technologies working the way they're supposed to. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is fascinating, Jeff. We're going to be coming right back with Jeff Spivey and information about what is being done to defeat hackers. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. 
It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Jeff Spivey is a risk assessment expert and is here today to discuss cyber terrorism and cybersecurity. Jeff, um, what is being done to protect our data? Give us give us some feelings of comfort. Yeah, yeah so I wish I could. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I think in general the uh, problem is uh, is the realization of the problem is probably getting worse. Uh, I think that there will be. Uh, more data breaches this year than last year. Uh, I think that there are, uh, there's a number of risks that aren't totally understood that um, will start to, to raise its head as well. Uh, so, so some of what I could chat about maybe would be uh, looking at it from the standpoint of uh, data breaches, uh, but also from the standpoint there's a, a group uh, ISC squared uh, that has information regarding the CIA triad, which is different than the intelligence group. Uh, it's what can be done to data. Uh, so confidentiality for the CI uh, for integrity, data integrity, and A for availability. Mm. So we hear a lot about the... Um, the confidentiality of data. So that when people are breaching it, then it's affecting that confidentiality. Uh, But we also have the opportunity of integrity, that there may be data numbers that may be changed. Somebody, the bad bad guy's gotten in to the system. Obviously, they're into a lot of different systems. Mm -hmm. And and I'll use the word bad guy for whatever, uh, if it's criminals or hacktivists or nation states, uh, but the ability to get in and change data, change the way uh, a piece of machinery operates, like happened in Iran with Stuxnet. Um, Can you explain that a little bit? Would you explain that a little bit, Jeff? 
Yeah, so that uh, in general, um, the uh, there is a piece of software that was created, and a lot of speculation on who actually created it. Uh, but that was found found its way onto a USB drive of a scientist that worked in the centrifuges uh, in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because of him having that on a USB stick, and he was using the USB stick when he's in uh, working with the centrifuge, that the malware, if you would, called Stuxnet, got into the system, uh, into the centrifuge, and basically changed numbers and made it uh, malfunction. Uh, to, to the extent that it had to be replaced or major components replaced. And so that was used in the enrichment of uranium. So how long delayed, did it take... I'm sorry, Jeff. How long did yeah. it take them to discover that? Well, once, as far as to discover it, I think that it actually happened you know, shortly thereafter, maybe within the, the first month of it actually being injected, then uh, this occurred. As as I've heard, so I, I'm not deep into the right. uh, national intelligence that may be around some of this, but the, the the bottom line is that changed the data integrity and uh, was targeted for that specific type of centrifuge. And so as we look at vulnerabilities in any of our organizations, whether it's a business, uh, whether it's uh, part of a government uh, or another type of organization, then there's a lot of dependency on, uh, on IT. And if you take a manufacturer, for instance, they have what they call uh, control systems that uh, are, is the IT around their machinery working the way it's supposed to to manufacture what's uh, being done mm-hmm. uh, or what's produced. And so the ability to change some of that and either bring those systems down or if I'm making a medicine to change the ingredient levels of that medicine mm. or whatever it may be, uh, that the ability to do that may be detected later let's say it's some formula that's supposed to be made in a certain way, uh, test at the back end of the development, finds out it's not, not producing what they thought it was. So whatever was made and the length of time and all of the resources that went into play to, let's say, make that particular formula at the end of the uh, assembly line, let's call it, then all of those resources are lost uh, and... The, the downtime of the equipment to try to figure out what's the problem, correct it, and then, and then be able to uh, regenerate uh, that production again. So it could happen in any type of, it could happen in pharmaceutical, it could happen in uh, production of, of uh, candies, it could happen in, in any type of thing that uh, uh, the data integrity is there. It could happen in the financial arena where somebody, the, the bad guys have gotten in and changed how much money is in an account or this changed the way me, that certain money's oh moved around. This just gives me chills. Yeah. And I, I hadn't considered all of those things you just mentioned. It's just very, very scary. Yeah, I think that it, it, it so it's not only scary now, but we look at the, the volume 
in the velocity of new technology that's coming down. So 60 Minutes, what, three or four weeks ago had where they could show where somebody at a distance could control a, a car. Uh, that's, that's heavily computerized, the ability to not even allow it to break uh, at certain points. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've, you've got new technology coming on all of the time, whether or not it's our cars being uh, affected by technology or more reliant on technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, or so not only transportation, uh, public safety, energy, how energy is, is using all of this new technology. You've got, from a, from a privacy standpoint, privacy is being totally rewritten. In the new, in the new world that my daughter wants to take a picture of her, her food and post right. that on Facebook <laughs> right. or post everything that's going on and, and so the understanding of my privacy is different than the generation out now. And what will it be in the future? And what's their understanding of privacy and maybe the value of privacy uh, is, going a, is, is having a total change globally by culture. There's different. So not only age group, but also privacy in India may be different than privacy in Russia. So there may be a lot of different uh, understandings of privacy uh, ISACA is doing uh, some good studies and some good movement of, of research around in this area as well. There's also a privacy association uh, that's out there. But it's this, the, the velocity and the volume of new technology that nobody really understands what the security risks are mm-hmm. in that new technology, whether it's the... Uh, uh, the new wearables, so it's a watch that's on your wrist, mm-hmm. and it's measuring my heart rate, and at what time is that, should that be HIPAA compliant? When my heart rate is on my watch, right. or when it connects in with my phone and transfers the information over to my phone, or when my phone, if I chose to, which, which I don't, but if my phone wanted to send the heart rate into a central monitoring group mm-hmm. that, then, that then puts together a lot of this demographics and says that somebody between this age and that age, right now they're having this kind of heart rate, and this is an average, and here's some out of the averages, and people start to understand more long-term uh, what, what, what health uh, may or may not look like. But there's a lot of data that's being collected on this. There's a lot of technology that's out there that the security vulnerabilities are not understood uh, with it. And, and it gets back to the business understanding what is their dependency on IT mm-hmm. and are they properly uh, allowing the resources to be applied to then protect that um, delivery of services that they rely on for their business, uh, whether or not that can occur or not. Well, and, you know, Jeff, you know, if you take that to the lowest common denominator, here we are sitting at home, everybody probably has at least one computer, if not an iPad, uh, a smartphone, and then take that, it's a hundred 
thousand million fold when you get to large corporations like the ones we were talking about, Sony, Anthem, and Bank of America and all these organizations. How do you possibly even keep up with the technology that is even changing our homes on a daily basis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. You, I mean, the, your your home can have a uh, router in it that a recent story talked about a certain percentage of a lot of the routers uh, from ISPs, internet service providers, mm-hmm. uh, have a certain flaw in it that allows the bad guys to get into the router and understand everything that's coming through the router. So uh, look at all of the information that's there and that type of thing, and that's provided by another company uh, yeah. or a company. Yeah. Or you've got, you've got uh, cameras that are in your house so that you can look at that on your phone and be notified if somebody's in your house. Uh, but it's also may, may have the vulnerability that mm-hmm. the bad guys can get in uh, and use a program like Shodan to be able to uh, look at all of the cameras that have a certain vulnerability in the world and then go in and look at what's going on in the uh, home to understand is there movement now, is there not. Uh, I understand where it is because I understand the geo. Mm-hmm. So geography that's there, whether or not it's from the ISPs, whether or not it's from the actual router, whether it's from phones, uh, the geo is giving a lot of a lot of information. I'll I'll divert just a little bit in that your phone has the capability of understanding the new phones and some of the the ones in the last year two or three have the understanding of of what where you are, possibly what floor you're on mm-hmm. if you're in a high rise. Uh, they understand. Um, your phone has in it a lot of passwords because you use your phone for email. You may use your phone for business email. You may be uh, on Facebook or LinkedIn or these others. All of those passwords are in your phone. Mm-hmm. And then you download uh, an app, uh, such as the case that the FTC in the U.S. Uh, exposed with a flashlight app. Right that was saying that, that the flashlight app, you think you're getting it, all you're going to get is an ability for it to have flash, you know, have a light in case you need it at nighttime, that kind of thing, or in the dark. And then what you agreed to, though, when you downloaded it, before you downloaded it, you agreed that they could look at all of your emails, look at all your passwords, mm-hmm. look at all of your correspondence, get all of your contacts, names, numbers, addresses, anything else, all of the information that's on your phone, then you agreed that that company could have that information. Right. And so it's, it's not against the law because you agreed to it. And, uh, we're so, so the, and, you know, Jeff, we're so focused on the United States. This is happening worldwide. That's correct. Yeah. Every I was I was in Botswana and Zimbabwe a couple of years ago. Everybody had a, a smartphone. Everybody, even out in the bush. And what Ooh. surprised me is they worked <laughs> out in the bush. Yeah. I mean, California, ours don't work all the time. But yeah. uh, and you know, and you. Um, um, made a statement in a presentation that I I saw that you gave Jeff, where uh, an iPhone has 625 times more transistors than a 1995 Pentium computer? Yes. 
Yeah. I mean, so the yeah the intelligence can... yeah the intelligence of the technology, whether it's the phones or other type of technology that's being put in your home or put in businesses. Uh, if you look at copiers and businesses, all of those are on the network. So if the bad guys get into the network, there's a downloadable off of Google uh, program that can go and uh, take information off of the copiers since the copier may have either received a uh, print job from a computer inside the network and wanted to print something, you can go in and capture what that was that was printed. So let's say you chose to you to get a hold of the printer that is being used in the legal division of a big corporation, mm-hmm. then you're seeing uh, probably private and confidential information in that corporation uh, just by the ability to know what's being what's being uh, printed out, what's being published uh, with it. So the, the and that's just in that one case. There's other ways to to get information within the corporations. Right. The uh, the the uh, talk about the phones in Africa. I saw something the other day where there in some parts of sub-Saharan Africa there are more phones. For, there are more people that have phones than have electricity. Oh, I believe that. I yeah. believe that. I went into a village that had no electricity, no means of having electricity. We were uh, probably an hour and a half walk in, and the guy that I was with, his his phone was working. It was astonishing. Yeah. I, yeah. And here I am in, in uh, Northern California, the home of uh, the Silicon Valley, and our phones don't work sometimes. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. But, okay, yeah. so we're going to take another break, Jeff. When we come back, I, I'd like you to talk about what's, what's happening, what can we do about this? Because it's, it's just so, it's so overwhelming. It's such a huge problem. So we'll Excellent. be right back with Jeff Spivey. Thank you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Topic of the day is cybersecurity and risk assessment with expert Jeff Spivey. Jeff, you were telling me about an app that is being developed, and could you talk about that a little bit? Uh, yes. Yeah. The name of the app is uh, Share Alert. Uh, their website is sharealert.io, uh, but they're also on the Android as well as the iOS. Uh, in a in a beta format, trying to get as much feedback as they can regarding the usability of the app. The concept of the app is very interesting in that, uh, and I think I can say this uh, with some validity that uh, the 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 typical security or police are very command and control, and they need to be that to be able to manage a lot of what they do. But the disruption that ShareAlert is providing is the ability for a community uh, to answer the question that DHS uh, directs us towards. And that is, if you see something, say something, but who do you say it to? So ShareAlert's able to make that connection of saying, you know, if you see something suspicious, not to take away from a, uh, a 911 call to the police, that should always happen. But if you see something suspicious, sometimes people decide in their mind that they don't want to report it. They won't. They want to wait for a policeman. They think it's not that big of a deal, that type of thing. So Share Alert's wanting the community to help the community. And the Share Alert app allows them to, in a very quick way, take a picture real quick or leave a voice uh, uh, notification or just a quick uh, sentence or two regarding the issue of where they are. So they don't have to say where they are. The phone and the app know where they are. They can report, you know, I just saw uh, somebody in the parking deck that's acting suspicious, um, you know, just walking around, looking at people, those kind of things. So they can put that in the app, and anybody, including security, including police, anybody that wants to listen to that, then can listen to it. They can be, you can walk into that geo and then be notified that uh, that there's been a report or a notification of something suspicious, and you can set you know, the the eventual app is moving towards being able to to make sure that people are notified in certain geos of different problems that may have existed in the past. Give them the opportunity to report these things as they go along, and it also assists uh, the security of buildings. I don't know how much. Um, the audience may understand, and you know, a lot of of uh, business districts. So let's say Manhattan or downtown Charlotte, where I am, or those kind of things. And a lot of times, within a block or two, you may have uh, ten, twenty different buildings, and each building may have different security personnel assigned to them. And those security people really don't talk to each other. 
So this app gives even the security people, much less the people going to and from work or in their office that would like to stay up on what's going on so that they don't walk into a problem, but that they're helping to provide intelligence so that the security groups can manage those security risks as they come up. Uh, And then the security people get to understand what is it that's going on around me. They can make an entry to be able to notify all of the other security groups within a a block, two blocks, all of the downtown area, that type of thing. Okay, so this brings up a lot of questions for me, Jeff. Uh, where where does this data get collected? What's the central point where this data would go? Yeah, so the, the data goes uh, into the cloud is where ShareAlert uh, keeps it and then is making it available to anybody in the geos. So it's not being restrictive in the information. The disruption occurs from not having the command and control, but having an open discussion. Uh, so you can have, uh, right now, ShareAlert is working on a uh, hashtag ShareAlert with uh, Twitter. Uh, so you can have the same information happen in Twitter, but it's not going to be as much geo-located. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And it's not in... Go ahead. Okay, so, so say I'm um, a small law enforcement agency in central... Central U.S. and I, so I log on to the geographical area. Maybe what a zip code or a, a latitude and longitude. How does that? Do you know? Yeah, yeah, how that yeah. Works? So you could you you could basically the the uh, the next level, if you would, that Sherlock uh, is looking on is being able to geofence. You could say I'm concerned with uh, with this geography, and I'd like to be notified anytime something comes up in that geography. Um, and so you can do that either through the app or you could do that through a dashboard uh, uh, on your desktop to be able to have that information flow come to you, but also having the ability to uh, enter information from either the desktop dashboard or from the app. Mm-hmm. So the police may, may be, uh, may be uh, you know, they heard about some suspicious guy and they had the call was directly made to the police, well, they may want to get it out to the community and make mm-hmm. sure the community is aware of it. So they can mm-hmm. be able to get that onto the share alert, and everybody would have the same information uh, with it. So it's, it's interesting. So it's a more open way of communicating uh, suspicious activity, and it, gives, it enables um, and, and fortifies, if you would, the community to better be able to protect the community. Oh, it's a fascinating concept. So you said it's in beta format. If people want to get involved and give input, uh, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so it would be two ways. One on the ShareAlert website uh, is a uh, way to to either submit questions or start a dialogue back and forth of ways that it can be improved or find out more information. Uh, The email address is listen at uh, ShareAlert.io. uh, as the email address, uh, and then also on the app itself, there is a location to be able to uh, to leave a message and report certain things or suggest certain things. But that's what we're trying to get is that dialogue so that the app can get as mature uh, as quickly as possible. It's it's doing a good job now, uh, but there's a lot. Uh, it's the usability, maybe some additional functionality. Uh, some of the campus groups already have universities 
have certain uh, apps, but a lot of those are the students telling the police, campus police, what is going on, which is great. But the problem is the students don't have information to be able to maybe protect themselves uh, if they're in that parking lot and something happened there two hours ago, then maybe it would be great for them to know about it so they could uh, have their awareness up a little bit higher. Uh, it may have been uh, a certain description of a suspect that because they know it, then they ended up seeing this person again and are able to report it. So it's that, it's that uh, multiplier, that force multiplier that it gives for better intelligence for everybody to then best manage what these security risks are. Okay, so the um, website for ShareAlert is at, would that be ShareAlert.com? No, 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 ShareAlert.io. .io, okay. Yeah. So yeah. I'm yeah. I'm looking at it, right, I'm pulling, trying to pull it up while we're talking, because um, this is such a fascinating concept. Yeah. Pers- yeah, ShareAlert. Yeah, yeah, we took the I.O. from uh, uh, Steve Wozniak, uh, who was one of the founders with Apple, uh, his website is .io, and there's a lot of people in the Valley that are starting to use I.O. as well. Mm-hmm. So we kind of wanted to show it as a little bit different than a, than a business type of thing, but wanted it to be more so community-based. Yeah, I brought it up here right here, the homepage, ShareAlert Personal Safety App. So, folks, if you're interested in this, this is just a fascinating concept. What a great idea. Um, you can get it at ShareAlert.io. There it is, right there. Uh, got it through Google. Yeah. And it's also in the Android and, and uh, iOS uh, Apple stores to download to the phone uh, directly that way as well. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, what other kinds of things are being done to, to protect all of us? Yeah. I, one of the things that's, that's somewhat uh, a lot of chatter around right now is the dark net uh, for people to understand that out of the, the whole World Wide Web, the Internet is maybe 15% of that whole web. Uh, and there's different parts of the dark net. There's different definitions to some of this, but I'll encourage the, everybody to go and try to understand more about it because this is where the bad guys are. This is where they've stolen something and they're trying to sell it. Or... And they may be doing that, may be doing that through uh, a marketplace like Evolution. Um, it provides anonymity in some of these locations. There's a, an area called Tor that's in the dark net that allows for anonymity. And when you provide anonymity to people, sometimes they do things they wouldn't have done. The masquerade ball, maybe they dance a little wilder, or they say things they wouldn't have said if they're behind that mask. So the ability to, uh, to understand what's going on in this arena, they have hacking as a service uh, in the dark net. So mm. if you want somebody hacked, then you can uh, put it out there and uh, hire somebody to do it for you. Or maybe you just need a kit to have it done. But it's a, a marketplace a kit? A way to communicate. Yeah, it's a, a kit. hacking kit? Yeah, so they, instead of software as a service or platform as a service, which is a lot of discussion around technology, then they've got crime as a service or hacking as a service or uh, other ways to try to, to basically sell certain uh, services that are against the law in 
different countries or different locations uh, as well. A lot of the way payments are made in the dark net is through Bitcoin. Uh, so there's a whole underground of, of marketing, if you would, that, that goes on. Uh, if the if the audience can do a search for uh, the firm Red Jack, uh, R E D Jack, one word, uh, there's a guy that's been inter- uh, that's been interviewed recently on an article. Uh, his name's Greg Virgin, but anyway, he does an excellent job of of explaining some things inside of the dark net. Uh, he goes into the dark net, tries to understand what's going on. This particular. Um, uh, link that you'll be able to find easily is going to be around the selling of healthcare information. So you've got all of this other PII, personal identifiable information, that's being sold, and you right. may get 50 cents or a dollar per. So when you look at Anthem, Anthem had 80 million uh, records supposedly or possibly that were breached, uh, and I just got my notification yesterday and Anthem occurred how many time, how long ago? Mm-hmm. So I just got my notification that apparently uh, my information was was a part of what was uh, possibly stolen. Mm. Uh, so that's how long it's taken just to get notifications out. But he does a great job talking about Medicare ID. So in this this uh, area, there you can't get to a lot of this with Google search because Google search indexes the internet. And so when we get out of the Internet into the deep uh, net, the, the dark web, the deep net, then there's different extensions. The one he talks about is .su or .so uh, as opposed to a .com or .org or those kind of things. But in this particular location, talking about uh, a guy that's selling Medicare IDs, and the bottom line is he's selling... Uh, and and these, the people that sell also have uh, ratings, just like they do in Yelp or whatever else. So you want to make sure you're dealing with somebody who's got high ratings because they've been reliable in the past. Right. And then you've got the, uh, these Medicare numbers for 10 of these Medicare numbers. The cost was 22 Bitcoin, which at the time, at the time of the article was $4,700 for 10. Hmm. And so the, the, there's going to be more and more of the HIPAA, Medicare, medical information that the bad guys are going to want because they do a lot more with this. Somebody takes over your identity, goes and has an operation uh, under your name. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may have insurance. You, know, you may take the identity. The bad guys may take the identity or sell your identity to somebody that's going to take it and have health care provided to them, have operations. Wow all of this other drive up your cost uh, out of it. So there's, there's uh, that end of it's going to be much more and is much more profitable than just stolen credit cards or some of the other things, social security numbers, even though some of the social security numbers or that type of thing help out. Uh, Jeff, that, you know what? I just, I just got notified that we are at the end of our program. This is so okay. fascinating. I just I hope what we have, have accomplished today is an awareness to folks on all the things that could be possibly threats to their own personal safety, their information, their corporate safety, um, all of it's out there. And I'm so pleased to share the microphone today with Jeff Spivey. Thank you for taking the time, Jeff, to share your thoughts. 
there's more to come. Check out those websites. Um, it, there's just there's just so much. So join Thank me again. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Sorry to cut you off. Join me no, again next. Fine. Yeah, join me again next week as we declassify more interesting stories from real investigators and people like Jeff Stevie. Uh, Spivey, I can't pronounce your name, Jeff. <laughs> That's okay. It's, it's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to PIC Classified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. PIC Classified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll be right back.